we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Uh, We have a few things to mention quickly uh, before we get going here today. One of them is obviously that I cannot wait for you to hear the interview we've done with Dr. Oz Guinness. We're going to be talking about the biggest dangers facing the church, the world, and the nation today. And I can hardly think of anybody better to do so or more suited to do so than Oz Guinness. And in addition to that, he has probably the most interesting story and upbringing that I've ever heard. So um, I hope you think it's just as interesting, and I'm sure you will. But this is a very practical and very helpful episode. And, And a lot of what we talk about, if not all of it, will be something that you recognize and have probably run into and had to deal with as well. So uh, very grateful for the opportunity to have him on and to talk to him. Uh, and I know when you have a podcast or a radio show or a YouTube channel or whatever, you're supposed to be like nonchalant about everything and just pretend uh, that nothing's a big deal. But I actually think every person I get to interview, I'm like psyched about. Uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. If you told me five years ago that I'd be interviewing guys whose books I read and lectures I listened to, I would have like I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, so I I really am grateful for the opportunity for every person we have on. Um, and so I I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy it because it is a really cool opportunity. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention before we get going on the episode is that the Divine Council series is going to continue next week which of course will be followed by the question and answer um, that Friday night. So the second part of the series is going to be released Monday at 6 p.m. And then the question and answer is going to be released Friday, a week from this Friday, if you're listening, uh, the week this episode comes out. So get in your questions. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Um, thank you for those of you who have already sent questions. Uh, they're very good questions. And I will note, for those of you out there who are kind of fiery, if your question is mean, I'm still going to answer it, of course, and I'm going to answer it gracefully, uh, but I'm not going to hesitate to point out the holes in your logic if you're not nice. So keep that in mind. Uh, But with that being said, send in your questions to information at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org. I cannot wait for the Q&A or the episode next week where we continue to describe the scope of the Divine Council worldview, uh, as well as what the role of the Divine Council is in Scripture and how we see it practically in the world as well, uh, looking at history. So don't miss that. Send in your question to information at apologetics.org. Uh, And don't forget to hit follow so you're alerted of all these episodes when they come out. It's easy to get busy, and I'm sure you listen to all kinds of stuff, as I do. Uh, So hit follow, and that way you'll be reminded of these episodes. That being said, let's get into our interview with Dr. Oz Guinness. Dr. Oz Guinness is an author and social critic. He has written and edited over 30 books, including The Call, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life, and his most recent book, Zero Hour America. Uh, Dr. Guinness, it is an honor to have you on today. How are you doing? I'm well, and it's a great pleasure to be on with you. It, it is an honor of mine to be able to interview you. I'm, I, I, I was actually just telling somebody I can't believe I get the opportunity to talk to such wonderful people on a regular basis. It really is... Uh, unbelievable, but thank you so much for coming 
onto the universe next door today. Not my privilege. Now, I wanted to ask you, there's there's so many directions uh, we could go um, and so many things to talk about because you've just written so extensively on so many topics. Um, but I wanted to start with a little bit of the story of your your upbringing and maybe uh, maybe a little bit of your testimony because I've heard some of your story and it's incredibly interesting. So uh, what can you tell us about your, your upbringing as a child and then... Um, eventually becoming not only a Christian, but somebody who's done so much work for the kingdom of God? Well, my story, I always think, through my family, goes back to the Guinness Brewery. You know, because my great ancestor, Arthur Guinness, who founded our family brewery, came to faith through the preaching of John Wesley in the revival of the 1730s, which changed Ireland and England and certainly made a huge contribution to the American Revolution. So one strand of my family has been strongly Christian ever since then. My great-grandfather, at the grand old age of 23, was the lead speaker in the Irish Revival. No microphones, of course. So he would stand on top of carriages, horse-drawn carriages, and we have newspaper accounts of 25, 30,000 listening, and then the Holy Spirit falling. And in that part of Ireland the year after, there was literally only one recorded crime. He was quite a character. But uh, his son, my grandfather, was one of the first Western doctors in China and treated the last emperor and the Empress Dowager. And my parents were born in China, and I was born in China. Now, Picking up my own story, I was born in World War II. When the Japanese invaded, 17 million were killed. To stop the army, the Japanese army, the Chinese flooded the Yellow River and killed another 900,000 of their own people. We lived in a famine in which 5 million died in three months, sadly including my own two brothers. There was cannibalism, people selling their children for an evening meal. And we then moved to the capital of so-called Free China, Nanking, and I was there uh, at the age of seven, and then for the next two years, uh, under the first two years of Mao's revolution. So my first 10 years were pretty dramatic. And then I came back to England and went to school and university. Now, I don't, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question because I, I mean, just there were probably seven or eight details in that story that I've probably never actually heard from somebody who's lived through it. But how do you process that as a child, losing your family, being in, in such a unique situation in China? Uh, how do you process that? Well, my parents were pretty amazing. They were part of what you might call today the greatest generation. I never once in all those years, particularly, say, when the communists took over, my dad was tried with trumped-up charges that all fell apart. But in all the death, violence, plague, revolution, you name it, I never saw them waver once in terms of their faith in God. And I've always summarized what my father used to say. God is greater than all. God can be trusted in every situation. Have no fear. Have faith in God. So I was brought up like that from a very early age, but of course it gave me a very realistic view of life and a very realistic view of Marxism. 
I myself came to faith. My parents were under house arrest in China. I was at school, and my own journey towards faith was when I was a late teenager. For two years, I was reading people like Friedrich Nietzsche and Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus on the atheist side, and then people like uh, Pascal, G.K. Chesterton, and C.S. Lewis on the Christian side. And I was eventually convinced beyond any shadow of doubt that the Christian faith was true. Wow. So it sounds like your your upbringing had a big, a big influence on you. And it's just amazing to see how, uh, you know, today in the culture that we live in in America, there are certainly problems that could get much, much, much worse. But persecution on that level actually existed for people. And I just, uh, it's just such an amazing testimony to hear, to, to hear what your family had gone through and that your grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, or is a great-great-great-grandfather, Arthur Guinness, he actually heard the Wesley brothers preach? Oh, yeah. And he, he was an evangelical in the 18th century, and my family were strong friends and supporters of, say, William Wilberforce and the abolitionists. So in Britain, the evangelical Christians have nothing to be ashamed of. You know, they were on the side of reform and justice and freedom and the abolition of slavery right from the beginning. And I'm glad I'm part of that tradition. There's so many over here who have a heavy load of guilt still because of some of the record of the South. Yeah, that really is. I mean, a lot of people don't recognize how much Christians really played a huge role uh, in abolishing slavery over there, and they're, they're living proof of it. Uh, so what is the story, because I've heard a couple different stories, but what is the story behind uh, Arthur Guinness starting the Guinness uh, Beer Company? What was his motivation? Well, there's a lot of myths floating around on that. He was actually a darn good brewer, and there was no sense of God's call when he started the brewery. He wasn't then, particularly didn't then personally have a strong faith. It was after he came to faith through John Wesley that everything changed. And what mattered then was he always paid his employees higher rate than others. He gave them health care, education, sports, you know, burial clubs, all sorts of things that no one in the 18th century did except other Christian corporations. The other two were the Quaker corporations, both chocolate makers, Cadbury's and Fry's. But those three were the big ones where you had clear Christian influence in business. But the idea that he had a sort of direct call of God to start brewing is wrong. That's a purely myth. Now, it did happen that in the 18th century, the problem was not drugs. It was the gin craze. And at that time, beer was the symbol of moderation. And many of the European breweries were founded by evangelicals. Christians drank beer. They didn't get drunk on gin. And so there was a definite witness to it all. But that was actually before the day of prohibition and uh, temperance and teetotalism and so on. Yeah, and it's amazing to see how Guinness is still so popular today. Uh, I have to say, I don't know if I've heard a more interesting family lineage from anybody I've ever interviewed. So that is, uh, that's pretty impressive. Uh, but so what got you started in ministry and in writing? Is that something that you'd always enjoyed or did that just, uh, is that a call that came at some point later in your life? After university, I went to Labrie, Francis Schaeffer's community. 
And it was late 60s, absolutely fascinating. People wrestling, uh, questing, reading, debating. And in 68, I came over to the U.S. for six weeks. East Coast, West Coast, Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, all sorts of places, Midwest, South, in between. And I had a fascinating time. A hundred cities were ablaze that year, far worse than 2020. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Senator Kennedy had been assassinated. America was up in arms in protest. So it was fascinating. And I went back. I met Mario Savio, the leader of the free speech movement in Berkeley. I went back to Labrie, to Switzerland, and just gave some you know, brief thoughts and then a few lectures. And people kept coming up saying, you've got to write this. Write it? I never thought of writing anything. But eventually, so many did. I thought, well, I'll have a go. And so I did. Labrie gave me six weeks, which is what it took to write a 400-page book. But it did well. And it kind of launched me accidentally, you could say providentially, into writing, which I've grown to love ever since. Yeah, and is it true? Because I, I didn't actually count them up, but it's often said that you've written and edited over 30 books. Yeah, actually a few more than that, but I just say over 30. Yeah, wow. That, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that takes a lot of focus. No, but G.K. G, G. Cheston wrote well over 100. You know, Alistair McGrath, the English apologist and scientist, he's written well over 50. No, so 30 is not that many. Yeah, well, it's 30 more than I've written. <laughs> uh, and speaking of that, you've, you've written a handful of books, even in the last couple of years. And I actually, I told Dr. John Lennox the same thing when we had him on the show. Uh, but apparently you stayed pretty busy during the time of COVID when a lot of people probably weren't all that busy. Uh, and your most recent book, I believe, is Zero Hour America. Can you tell us a little bit about what that book is about and where the title came from? Well, there was a silver lining in COVID for me as a writer. I used to write round the edges of a busy life on planes, weekends, and so on. And the first year of COVID, I was able to write four books. So actually, it was a wonderful thing for me, a blessing in disguise, although I don't want to minimize the horror of that first year of COVID. You know, but for some years, I've been very, very interested in America. People say, why? Well, how do you understand a nation? Augustine puts it like this. You don't look at the size of its population or the strength of its military or the power of its GDP or whatever. You look at what a nation loves supremely and then see how that is doing. Well, obviously, what America loves is freedom. And so to understand the American nature of freedom and how it's doing has always fascinated me because American freedom is an ordered freedom which comes from the Torah, comes directly from Exodus and Deuteronomy, rediscovered in the 17th century, it was called the Hebrew Republic, the people were fascinated with. And through the Reformation, there was a rediscovery of the biblical view of politics. And the key notion of covenant became the American notion of constitution, and so on. Now, many Americans don't know their own background. So I've always been fascinated to try and understand ordered freedom in America and to ask myself, where is it today? And of course, today, it's in an extreme menace and dangerous situation. Now, why do you think it's in an extremely dangerous situation? Well, a simple way of putting it would be everybody recognizes the division. 
the so-called polarization. But why? Is it the social media? Is it the former president? Is it the coastals like California or over against the heartland like the Midwest? It's all of those in some ways. But the deepest division, if you think, is between those who understand the republic and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which was largely, although not consistently, biblical, and those who understand American freedom from the perspective of ideas coming down from the French Revolution. Because things like postmodernism, multiculturalism, identity politics, tribal politics, the sexual revolution, the cancel culture, every one of those is an heir of the French Revolution, not the American. Nick, if you put that in biblical terms, you know, all Christians know Galatians, the letter to Galatia. Paul says to them, who's bewitched you? You're following a different gospel. You've shifted from a gospel of grace to a gospel of legal works. And in the same way, what I'm saying to America is, in essence, who's bewitched you? You are switching from a gospel, uh, sorry, not a gospel, a revolution coming from the Torah to a revolution coming from the French Revolution. And they will go in entirely different directions. Now, people say, what on earth are you talking about? Now, the French Revolution only lasted 10 years in France. Then came dictatorship, Napoleon. But like a huge volcanic explosion, the lava flow has flowed out ever since. The main lava flow that everyone knows is revolutionary socialism or communism. But what we're facing, people are only just beginning to understand in the last two or three years, although it goes back nearly a century, is cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism, which is quite different. And that is what made such incredible inroads into this country. Now, why do you think it is that there have been so many inroads of cultural Marxism into today's culture? And do you think that uh, you know, a lot of people, they tend to think, and I talked about this with Dr. Uh, Douglas Groteis, a lot of people tend to think that with the George Floyd riots and so on and so forth, all of this stuff just kind of popped up. But uh, there's been a lot of a lot of uh, scholars who have shown, whether it's Groteis, whether it's James Lindsay, uh, they've shown that these have roots, very deep roots, and this stuff didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Um so I guess my question is, why do you think we allowed this to happen, and why are we allowing it to get so much worse? Well, you know, John Kennedy wrote a book in the 1930s called While England Slept. And you could write a book, say, While America Slept. So I live in Virginia, Fairfax County next to Loudoun County. Our new governor is a wonderful governor, Glenn Youngkin, because of the Loudoun County controversies over parents and the teaching of critical race theory. Now, many people had never heard that term till the controversy started. And then when the term came up, they traced it back to the Harvard Law School and Derrick Bell in the 1970s. But that was incredibly naive. It goes all the way back to Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s. And if we've been understanding what they've been advocating, what they've been predicting, for instance, Wilhelm Reich, who's the man who gave us the term the sexual revolution, because you have sex Marxism as well as race Marxism and other forms. He said very clearly, 
and you can read his little book, a paperback, The Sexual Revolution, we want to subvert 3,000 years of civilization. In other words, the Jewish past as well as the Christian. And we have two great enemies, the church and the family. So for a long time, you can read H.G. Wells in 1900 or Reich himself. We want to sideline parents and we'll do so by teaching sex ed at ages three and four. And you can see today parental responsibility has become a huge flashpoint in American culture. We should have been prepared. We should have been warned of this because they wrote quite clearly. Anyone who doesn't take their enemies seriously when the, your enemies tell you what they're going to do is really foolish. So how is the Christian in this today's culture with everything that's already sort of sprung up and continued on um, in, in regard to these ideologies – how can the Christian be prepared to fight against it? How can the Christian move forward, uh, even if it's at a cost? Well, we've got to recognize where we are. The West, not just America, but the West, is the child of Christendom and all that the gospel has brought to the West. We owe a lot to the Greeks, to the Romans and others, but the West is specifically Christian. In the 18th century, the Enlightenment tried to replace the Christian faith. It was in favor of the West, but not in favor of the Christian faith. What we have today, which has been called the war on the West, Douglas Murray and so on, a war of the worlds, as others put it, is various ideologies which are not only against the Christian faith, they're against the West itself. And you can see that with the woke movements here in America. In other words, we're at a very radical moment when the American intellectuals have rejected the faith that made this country, and they've rejected the revolution that made this country. So America, as a republic, is doomed unless there's a turnaround. Now, this is forcing us as followers of Christ really to go back to square one to see whether we are what we should be. And the fact is we aren't. If you look at many Western European countries, France, Germany, Britain, the church is a tiny minority and largely irrelevant. Here, we're a huge majority still, and there are tiny, like our friends the Jews, they are 2% of America, but they punch well above their weight magnificently. Whereas we, who are a huge majority, and we are called to be salt and light are anything but influential in culture. So all sorts of things come in. We have got to return to being a counterculture. The first words to Abraham are negative, leave. He was called to leave his country, culture, and kin. Our Lord, in the world, but not of the world. Or Paul, be not conformed, but transformed. Or St. Augustine, we're members of the city of God, not the city of man. We've got to recover our countercultural stance with faithfulness. And that's a key part, including the notion of calling. Now, when you, uh, you mentioned the church being countercultural, um, and you'd given those, those examples, like Augustine with the city of God, we're not of the world, we're the city of God. Um, You've also written a lot about purpose. I mean, I think, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but The Call is probably your most popular book. Is that correct? Oh, by far. 
So you've written a ton about life purpose, finding and living out your life purpose. Uh, what is the purpose of the church today? Like, and what I mean by that is, what does it look like to be countercultural? Because there's this new movement. It's, it's, I think, a growing movement. Maybe not as big as they make it look, but a growing movement of Christian nationalism, of theonomy. Uh, and so, where does a Christian stand in this? How can we live out the church, the church's purpose faithfully? And and what are the I don't want to say limitations, but how do we stay in our lane without without doing something that we're not supposed to do in this regard? Well, I'm opposed to theonomy. I am too. But when Christians are charged with nationalism, there's often a confusion. Patriotism is good. Humans need meaning, make sense of their world. They need belonging, find security in their world. So we all need a place. Patriotism is the love of the place which we've grown up in, we've lived. Now, that's not blind. We love places, and we know their weaknesses as well as their strengths. Nationalism is patriotism made into an idolatry. Now, there are a lot of Christian intellectuals, evangelical intellectuals, who've said that all patriots are nationalists, and that's incredibly dangerous because many of them are actually globalists. And if you think for a moment, Nick, in the old days, nationalism was the threat to localism. Today, globalism is the threat to both of them. And I think the biblical idea is a balance between all of them. So you have the wonderful idea in the Old Testament of people living under their own vine and fig tree. I love that. And you may know, George Washington quotes that verse from Micah 49 times in his wow. writing, the most quoted verse in his, in his correspondence. So we should be local. There should be a local freedom, home, family, neighborhood. But then we do believe in the nation. But we also have the, uh, globalism in our DNA. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, the Great Commission, and so on. The challenge today is to have a balance between the global, the national, and the local. And people at Davos and the Club of Rome and so on, they just want to be globalists and swamp the national and swamp the local. So be very wary when people say that patriots are nationalists. No, we should be patriots, but be very wary of nationalism. And I, I guess patriotism almost could be reduced to being grateful for the country and the situation that God has placed us in. Yeah, absolutely. But nationalism, I love that. I, I don't know if I'm going to quote it exactly right. I tried to write it down. But when you said nationalism is patriotism turned idolatry, could you break that down a little bit more too? Because I'd like to use that as a one-liner here. Well, you know, my home is Oxford. And I was having a, a fun debate last week with people from Cambridge. I know the difference between Oxford and Cambridge. I could put our strengths. I could put our weaknesses. But Oxford's not an idol to me compared with Cambridge. And in the same way, Americans should be able to say that what's great about America? And they should be able to confess where America has sinned, racism, colonial, it's imperialism, and so all sorts of things. We, we should be grateful and appreciative and fight for the best in our countries, but never turn a blind eye to the worst and refuse to face that too. So nationalism is just patriotism elevated into an idol. Uh, so is there an element where freedom can become a, a bad thing, where either on one hand it can go too far for a person, 
Uh, or on the other hand, it can be perverted where people can use it to entice, let's say, the sexual revolution. They could say, well, it's your body, your choice, it's your freedom, uh, or maybe even cancel culture where you have the freedom to do this, this, and this, and that person shouldn't be able to say this thing or this thing. Um, do you think there's a danger in freedom? Absolutely there is. I have a chapter in the book you mentioned, Freedom is the Greatest Enemy of Freedom. That's the paradox of freedom we've got to face up to. So freedom, as you said, can run to excess and become license and undermine itself. Or freedom itself can become an idol, and you can fight for freedom in the ways that suppress other people. But for me, the worst thing of all is that freedom carries responsibility. If I'm free, I'm responsible for what I think, what I do, how I act. Many people are afraid of their own responsibility. Genesis 3, the fall, the irresponsibility of sin is at the very center of it. The woman you gave me, Adam says, and so on. So when freedom is afraid of responsibility, it would prefer to give up freedom and hand it over, say, to the state. And so sadly, you often see times in history when people choose tyranny rather than the responsibility of freedom. And there's a flight from freedom in the resort and dependency on tyranny. Now, what would you define as uh, the biggest problem today facing, well, let's say facing people in general, what's the biggest problem today facing the culture or the the globe in general? Uh, And what is the biggest problem facing the church? Are they both the same thing or are they different? No. When we're looking at America, I was saying earlier, I think the deepest problem are the ideas coming down from the French Revolution. And just as Moses said, I put before you life and death, blessing and curse, we need a Lincoln in our time who will say to America, choose, do you want to go the way of the French Revolution? Or do you want to return and see a renewal? Lincoln called it a new birth of freedom. In our time, I think we need a new, new birth of freedom. Now, that's America. But the church is different. I think the principal problem of the church is it's worldly, including us who are evangelicals. Evangelicals, uh, up until the early 70s, were pietists and rather remote from culture and had a high view of the danger of worldliness. But when they moved out into the culture, the born-again era and so on, much of the excesses of the megachurch movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, and celebrities and all that, the American evangelical church has become profoundly worldly, more like the world than the kingdom. And so we need a revival and a reformation and go back to being who we should be. So I would say ideas from the radical left are the problem for America. Worldliness is the problem for the church. Now, you know, when I was a boy, worldliness was don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke. You know, trivial little things. And the 60s, they were thrown out. But then there was no category of worldliness. So, for example, Nick, by worldliness, I don't just mean things like that. You take the simple fact that many evangelicals and other Christians in America are functional atheists. Peter Berger, my mentor, used to say, we live in a world without windows. In the Bible and in much of the world and in the traditional world, what was unseen 
was not unreal. It was more real than the seen. But in the modern world, certainly in much America, what is unseen is unreal. We have lost the supernatural. Now, it's true, many of the charismatics and so on are kept alive. Some of them have gone to their own extremes. But much of the American church is profoundly worldly. It's as naturalistic as many of its neighbors were atheists. That's the sort of worldliness that I'm talking about. Now, that brings to mind, uh, you wrote a book, I believe it was called Dining with the Devil, and it was actually uh, one of my favorite books that you had written. And one of the reasons that it's my favorite is it was written a couple decades ago, but the reason that's so helpful is because you can see at that time people like you and others raising the red flags and, and saying, wait a minute, what's what's going on here? Why are we doing this? Uh, and, and it's helpful to show how we got to where we are today. Um, so why is it? It seems to me that not the church as a whole, but a good majority of the church in America seems to be eating up these ideologies on a silver platter. It seems like they're taking them in just like everybody else. And toward the beginning of the episode, you mentioned Galatians and asking the question, who's who's bewitched you? How have you been so easily manipulated and pulled away from the gospel? Uh, but how did the church get here? Well, you think of very simple good things like growth. Who doesn't want growth? Or success. Who doesn't want success? And the appeal of these things was very seductive. And so pastors wanted growth. And anything that gave you growth was good. No, it wasn't. Some ways of growing are not good. And whenever they're out of touch with the Word and the Spirit, they can become dangerous in their own way. And you can see how much of that in the excesses led to all sorts of problems in the church, which we're just getting over. Now, many of our recent problems are more political. In other words, when I first came to America as a visitor in 1968, most evangelicals were privatized. That was when Theodore Rajak made this famous comment, they were privately engaging, publicly relevant. But then, through Roe v. Wade, 1973, evangelicals suddenly woke up, a sleeping giant, as they put it, but many of them went from the extreme of being privatized to the extreme of being politicized. They did politics in the same way that other people did politics. You remember the old 19th century phrase, which I love, do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And when you have a politicized church, well, today evangelicalism is toxic. And we have become the people of the bad news in America not the people of the good news. And that's tragic. We've become profoundly worldly. And again, we need revival and reformation. We need, America needs an awakening. And so this is a topic that's become, I think, pretty relevant today, but pragmatism sort of keeps the church from doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way, mm -hmm. in many cases. Yeah. Because you, because pragmatism is just focused on the end result uh, or the number of people or what works practically, where, for example, uh, expository preaching might not work practically in terms of growing a large church uh, in some cases, but what might work practically is not mentioning homosexuality, uh, not mentioning difficult passages, having a, a pastor swing in from a rope on the ceiling. Um, these are things that might practically grow a church, but you're not doing the Lord's work the Lord's way in, th in that case. And when we do it, we don't have the Lord's blessing and the Spirit's blessing on us. Now, you're, you're exactly right. Now, of course, 
pragmatism is a wonderful strength of Americans. They're practical people. And, you know, the great contribution of Americans to philosophy is pragmatism, William James and so on. But as you rightly point out, pragmatism, when it becomes again an idol, becomes very dangerous because many things work which are not right. So how do we get back to the Word of God? I mean, I could just imagine, let's say somebody sitting in a church they've been part of for a couple of years and they think, well, Come to think of it, my pastor kind of does these things, and we sort of play music that appeals in these ways. Uh, what can we actually practically go and do about it? How can we make a change in this area, even a little one? Well, I think one thing that should, should unite all of us is a prayer for revival and awakening. And that's one of the benefits that's grown out of the pandemic and COVID and so on, a renewed sense of prayer around the nation because we've become far too secularized. Our African brothers and sisters, or say our Korean brothers and sisters, great people of prayer, and Americans are often prayerless. That's an incredibly important part. Now, I personally think that calling is another vital part. In other words, it's not that we must all get into politics, or we must all get to the media, or whatever, no. It's everyone, everywhere, in everything. The Lord deploys his people. There was a movement about 20 years ago called Strategic Callings. In other words, where were Christians very strategic? We should all go there. I think that's wrong. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, and you know the Greek word for general is our English word strategic. The Lord of hosts, he gives us the gifts. He deploys his people. So the basic Christian engagement is not with Washington, that's a part, we're citizens. The basic Christian engagement is in the callings we each have, our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and so on. And if everyone is salty and light-bearing in those, that makes an incredible difference. And then we could move up to all sorts of areas, too. There are 101 things we could mention. Yeah, I, I've heard a quote, I believe it was from Greg Kokel, uh, who had said that we should focus less about God's purpose for our life and more about our life for God's purpose. Uh, meaning, I think a lot of people may get caught up on what exactly in this situation does God want me to do instead of just obeying God and being faithful. Um, so do you have advice on how a Christian is to, I mean, you mentioned calling even in terms of family and just, and just doing things that are godly things, uh, but how does a, a Christian determine sort of their calling and their purpose and how can they go about living that out? Well, you've rightly put the danger of it. And even, you know, my notion of calling, which I've fought for for years, people s transform that into what they call the search for the sweet spot. And then it became a form of selfishness, which is anything but calling. And the great danger of calling is selfishness and conceit. But what is calling? If we think of our lives, our identity, our sense of purpose, there's a clear blue core of the flame of what really makes us the gifted people we are. Some are good with their hands, some with their minds, some with their this, that, and the other. Some are leaders, some are engineers, some are artists, you name it. What are the gifts that God has given us? Now, they've given those gifts to us for him, for his glory, and for our neighbor's good. But I think parents should call that out of teenagers not only just their identity, but their sense of giftedness and calling. Then the 20s and maybe 30s sometimes 
are the period when you trial and error. You leave college, there's six things you could do. And then you try one or two, oh, that's not me. And you realize, no, what I'm really best at is this, not that. Now, a lot of people choose wrongly in their 20s, and then they hit a midlife crisis in their 40s. It's never too late to change. Now, we've got to be very careful. In our American society, everyone middle class and above is able to choose mostly what they want to pursue. But in most of the, let's say, much of the world and in most of history, people just couldn't do that. They had to put bread on the table and do what their fathers and grandfathers did and their grandmothers and and mothers and grandmothers did and so on. And you have in the New Testament, Paul calls the slaves. They couldn't change slavery, but they could be slaves called by the Lord and not just by their masters. So we mustn't turn calling and giftedness into anything that's the search for the sweet spot that's all about me, because that's another form of American entitlement, and that's terrible. Well, it's funny because what comes to mind is uh, I listen to a, a couple of different Christian finance channels or programs where they talk about Christian being a Christian in, in uh taking care of your finances properly. And one of the things I hear all the time is the same story where somebody says, I'm $100,000 in student debt. Uh, Someone had kind of made me think I was supposed to do this thing. And so I thought I was supposed to do this, but now I don't want a job in this area. And I have all of this debt. Um, So I I think it is pretty common to, to maybe think that you're supposed to do this or that, maybe because someone else did it, or maybe because it seems like the right thing to do. Uh, But then it just doesn't end up really being an actual fit. No, you're absolutely right. And there are many people who have gone to university and we have inflated college degrees and so on uh, who have just been rendered useless for much of life. Now, that's, that's become a real problem. So we need to introduce that notion of calling. And as I said, teach it not only in church, but parents and coaches. I mean, good coaches bring out the very best of the players and their team. And in the same way, good parents and good mentors should be seeing teenagers. What is it they're good at? It's most themselves when they're doing it and sort of affirm and encourage and then support them realistically going forward in ways that really train them to be able to do that well in the rest of their lives. It's a tricky thing and many people have gone wrong. Yeah, and I look at this a little differently now that I actually have uh, I have a one-year-old child, but now I, I look at all, a lot of these things a little bit differently uh, because I actually have a kid. But I've noticed that even in, in a church setting, a lot of students um, in the church who are on sports teams or theater or so on and so forth, they've started scheduling a lot of games on Sunday mornings and on Bible study nights. And, and it just seems so difficult. Like as a, a Christian parent, you're always trying to have to battle all of these different forces who just yeah. seemingly don't want your, your kids to be yeah. at church. And that seems obvious given the supernatural world, but it, it just seems like it, it just becomes more and more difficult. Well, two comments on that, Nick. You're absolutely right. But take the general problem of how families pass on uh, all that they are. You know, when I first came here in 68, one thing that shocked me, I was in a huge number of different wonderful families. They never sat together as a whole family at supper time, dinner time. Dinner, the dinner, the family dining table is the key to transmission of so much of the values of the family. 
you know, Americans moved so fast, off to a sports practice, off to a violin lesson, whatever it was. The family dining table had become a Grand Prix fast-fueling pit stop. And that, that doesn't do its job. No, but you're rightly putting your finger on the second problem, which is Shabbat, the Sabbath. The Jews would say it's the Shabbat meal, Friday night for the Jews before the Sabbath, that is the core of family life. And you can see today, I mean, when I was a boy in Europe, Britain respected Sunday. And we called the Continental Sunday, the way the French and others didn't have any place for Sunday at all. Then I came to America, a deeply Christian country, far more than Britain, far more than France. And yet things like football drowned out anything on Sunday. And I think it's another form of wilderness. All right, we've got to replace these things that are so important. We've got to practice. Now, people are reconsidering that because of social media. We've got to take these things you know, and, and discipline ourselves with them. And many people say, no, on Sunday. I don't do any emails on Sunday, for example. But we've got to bring back spiritual disciplines into our lives so that we're practicing closer to the great truths of Scripture. And you mentioned earlier the influence of cultural Marxism uh, today and also the idea of the church and the family being sort of the greatest enemy to that. And it, and it seems like both of these areas are, are constantly attacked, where even something as simple you mentioned as family dinner. I mean, that's something that hardly anyone does. And, and all of these things that were just the norm for so long, it seems like the nuclear family is, is being attacked and being separated, whether it's family dinner, whether it's church, whether it's anything having to do with that. Uh, it, it seems like you you kind of nailed it where those two things are the things that are really being attacked and really hold the culture together. Um, so I guess if I could ask you one last question, it would be how do we how do we go on living out our purpose? How do we not only oppose that but also do the right thing in that situation where it just seems to be becoming increasingly difficult and less popular? You know, the wonderful thing is that the simple truths of the Scripture are basic to humanity and basic to free and just societies. So they may be beleaguered today as the radical left and others are turning away from the Christian faith, but as people see the extremes and the excesses of what they're into, they appreciate again these simple truths. So you take the family. If you think for a minute, the family does three incredibly foundational things. One, it's the love between parents that generates life. Without a family, no life. Two, the family is the basic matrix in which we discover identity, who we are and what we're about. And it's the basic place that shapes our values, rights and wrongs and all these things. Family is absolutely crucial to humanity and certainly to freedom. And so we're proud and grateful to really stand for the biblical view of family. But I would say, Nick, if you think of the chaos today politically and so on, what we see in the Old Testament, and I strongly resist those pastors who ignore the Old Testament, let alone that famous pastor who called us to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, that's dead wrong. But you look in the Old Testament, you have things like human dignity made in the image of God, truth, the reality of reality, words, 
words that create worlds, words that destroy worlds. Freedom, justice, peace, covenant and community, and then family, of course. These are incredibly foundational, wonderful truths, and we're the champions and the heirs of them as followers of Jesus, along with our Jewish friends. And so we needn't be ashamed. The idiotic alternatives, I often say about the radical left, their revolutions never end, never succeed, and their oppressions never end. And what we have in contrast is something absolutely wonderful. We truly are the guardians of the good news. And in today's culture, with all its craziness, the gospel is the best news ever. Yeah, I could not agree more. And in fact, I've, I've done a video uh, about some of those American pastors that I'll put in the description below. But also in the description will be your book, uh, The Call, which for those of you listening, if you haven't read it, just click it, order that book and read it. You need to read it. Uh, and Dr. Oz Guinness, is there anything else that you have coming up we can look forward to? Well, I actually have a book coming out. I have two books that I've written for seekers. Last year, I wrote The Great Quest, A Thinking Person's Search for Meaning. And coming out in March, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. Because I love the fact that you look at all the great stories. Of, see, C.S. Lewis, hard-boiled atheist. But he had the experience of joy. Couldn't explain it. It punctured what he believed as an atheist and pointed beyond to something. And for more than a dozen years, he searched for the foundations of it and eventually came to faith in Jesus. And so I've got a book of 10 stories of people very, very different who've all come to faith through signals of transcendence. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, I'll link that in the description below. Uh, and Dr. Guinness, it has been such an honor to have you on. Thank you for, for joining us on The Universe Next Door. My privilege, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Don't forget, next week we're continuing the series on the Divine Council Worldview. Um, so make sure you get your questions in soon. Send them as soon as you can, and that way we'll get them answered for the question and answer. And if you find yourself bored in the meantime, listen to some more episodes of The Universe Next Door. And we'll see you back here next week, Monday night at 6 p.m.